Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Welcome, everybody, to Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Luke McLeese, and today is a very special day. We have a guest, Dr. Travis Martin, on the show. Dr. Travis Martin is the creator and director of the Kentucky Center for Veteran Studies, the first academic and co-curricular service learning program of its kind. He has worked on the behalf of the veteran community as an advocate, a community leader, and educator, publishing dozens of short works and giving talks on topics related to veterans' identity, culture, and experiences for more than a decade. Travis, welcome. Thank you for being a part of this show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Excellent. So, Travis, uh, aside from this bio, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I was uh, born and raised in uh, Somerset, Kentucky, which is a little town in the southern part of the state. I grew up in a farming family, particularly my grandfather uh, had an Angus farm. He's a really inspirational person in my life before he passed, especially. He uh, grew up son of seven kids and had to quit school when he was, before he could read and write so that he could help uh, work and support his family. And so he did that, walking, I'm told, barefoot, uphill both ways to his jobs and was eventually able to learn the trade of carpentry and go off and buy his own farm. And he actually went back. His father had lost the farm that he grew up on and he made enough money in carpentry to buy that back and before he passed he had over a, a million dollars worth of property a man who couldn't read and write his own name and he's always been an inspiration to me because it just shows that intellect is not always uh, defined by our, our ability to, uh, to read to write to do the things they tell us in school a lot of times our intellect is defined by our grit our emotional IQ our passion our perseverance and so those are the traits that I've really tried to model from him throughout my life that's awesome that's awesome and absolutely there, there's something fascinating about the generation of people that knew how to capitalize on that right and it's something that's almost lost these days and, and we you know we both work in education but there's something outside of the formal education that is so powerful. Like you talked about people's emotional intelligence. I think that generation would have called it street smarts, although it's so much more than that. That's that's amazing. That's great. So native Kentuckian. All right, sir. Tell me about, um, I've got a couple questions that we always ask everyone uh, when we start the, the podcast. And that is, so you as a veteran and you as a veteran working in higher education, can you tell me uh, one thing at least that veterans in higher education are doing well right now? I think as far as our, you know, our support services on campuses, they are really top notch and they have grown a lot since I was undergraduate in 2008, 2009. I know at our school, we went from one person kind of in a broom closet doing VA VA claims to an entire uh, center staff devoted to uh, knowing and understanding and uh, serving veterans needs. I think as far as academics have gone, you can see all across the country that research has really kind of focused in on a lot of issues that veterans are facing. If you look at the Institute out in Syracuse, for example, they're doing a lot of great work. We were able to start the Veteran Studies Program at EKU, and I believe there are four or five of those now. I believe a new one coming our way. 
uh, where you work at, Luke. So we have a growing discipline among the academic ranks that is uh, poised to really uh, take off. I, I make this analogy quite a bit that the uh, first women and gender studies program was like in the 60s and 70s, and there are close to, if not more, a thousand of those programs now. So within a few decades, if veteran studies keeps on the track that it's going, if we keep being collegial, if we keep working with each other, we can really kind of revolutionize the academic curriculum and landscape through which the general population of students is learning about vets and the things they go through. So as far as student services, as far as academics go, I think we are doing great things. That's that's amazing. That's very insightful because I couldn't agree more. Uh, your experience and my experience were exactly the same. You know, I, I work in, in services now. When I worked at EKU, where you work, they had a great veteran services outfit going on. But when I was an undergraduate, my VA paperwork was done by a vet in between his smoke breaks. And then that was it. You know, we were kind of shoved off to the corner and no one knew how to, to handle what a vet on campus might be like. So man, I completely agree. And I couldn't agree more on the academic side. You know, one thing I found in veteran studies, as opposed to some other fields, is the willingness to collaborate and the willingness like everyone sees what a positive thing is happening and so they're willing to help grow it I think that's part of why it has grown so fast in such a short amount of time I think I think one important thing too with veteran studies is that it's also inclusive of people who care about vets uh, you don't necessarily have to be a veteran to research veterans issues I often say whenever we're looking for instructors that I would prefer a veteran uh, with some academic credentials but if a, a civilian comes my way who researched veterans for a decade, you know, obviously they have a lot to offer. Diligently went out there and compassionately went out there and tried to learn about ways to serve. And so I look at veteran studies as a civic responsibility of all citizens, not just veterans off in a corner by themselves uh, researching the things that are impacting them, but rather the community as a whole coming together to um, support the people who've served. I think that's uh, one of the great things that we're going to be able to contribute to our society as a whole through this discipline. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That's amazing. So, so talking about veteran, talking about academics, there obviously has to be a, a military start. Travis, can you tell us about your personal uh, start? Like, what was your desire or motivation to join the military? What branch? What was your job? Uh, your time in? All of, all those things. What was that like for you? Yeah, well, I'm just going to give the real story. I mean, I could give like the uh, the story in which you know I was a young, super patriotic American who wanted nothing more to serve his country and who lived up to his grandfather's ideals for hard work and discipline. But that, that was not me at that time in my life. I uh, probably had a 2.0 in high school. In my immediate family, I didn't really have a father figure. My grandfather was obviously a great influence in my life because of that. But I was going through that whole teenage angst and, you know, was kind of trying to figure out who I was and what my future would be. I was working at a gas station full time. I enrolled in a local community college just because that's what everyone did. And um, right. because the way our public school system worked, at least here, I had never really developed any sort of academic skills or the discipline. Or I, I was a first generation college student as well. So I had no clue where I was headed, what I was doing, or why I was there. And so it didn't take long, a matter of weeks before I was failing every single one of my classes. I had majored in business um, with no 
interest in business other than two of my friends were doing it. Right. And um, so I found myself quickly failing my classes and looking back to a time in high school when I'd gotten into a lot of trouble. I'd gotten in trouble for trying to be funny on a paper in which uh, I wrote some things that really made the teacher angry. And so I got sent to the principal's office and they sent me to the guidance counselor and the guidance counselor basically said, um, Travis, we, we don't think you're going to make it in the real world. You should really talk to this recruiter we've got here on campus and just uh, see what he has to offer. And I was like, this will get you off my back. I'll do it. So I talked to the guy. This is my junior year. He tells me what the Army has to offer. I'm looking at myself and I'm like, nah, sorry, buddy. But you just got them off my back. That's all I needed from you. Right. And so fast forward, you know, a year, a year and a half later to my first year in college. And there I am, my full-time job, you know, making minimum wage, uh, working doubles for an extra carton of cigarettes, failing college, taking on debt, living in my mom's basement. I'm like, I got to do something. I got to get out of here. So I go back to that same recruiter and I tell him, I'm like, look, my life's not what I want it to be. Tell me again about the army. And so he looks at me and he's like, so this is just the bottom of the barrel for you, huh? And I was like, yeah. I look back and I, I think, you know, this the staff sergeant, you know, had lived, you know, an honorable life, had really taken pride in his career, the rank on his collar, the patches on his sleeve. And this young punk kid comes in just saying that his lifestyle is the bottom of the barrel and how disrespectful that must have been. Right. And how uh, I didn't even register it as that at the time. You know, I was just in it for what I could get. But he, he didn't care. You know, he, he wanted to get me in the Army, and he helped. And, uh, in uh, November of 2002, I found myself uh, being in, on a bus to uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. I had taken a contract for being an 88 Mike truck driver. Essentially did my training and rolled that up about the time I was finishing my AIT. The, the tanks were rolling into Baghdad. And so I had a pretty good idea of where I was going next. I was right. I had a contract for Europe, uh, which I was, I was going to be stationed in Mannheim, but my unit had already deployed to Kuwait about a month or two before. And so as soon as I got there, uh, they said, yeah, you're, you're going to be joining your unit as soon as you're done with your end process here. And that's pretty much where I found myself. So the, all the promises about, you know, being stationed in Europe began to look pretty dim at that point. But I, I joined my unit in 2003 and finished that deployment up, I believe, in February of 04. I uh, went back to Mannheim, Germany for about nine months and then went back to Iraq again for a year the second time, finished up my last uh, bit in Germany. So I did my entire four years overseas, uh, Iraq, Germany, Iraq, Germany, and then came back to Kentucky. And I could have went to any school that I wanted, but I was a different person at that point. In particular, I, I'd been in an IED blast. And I, I credit this a lot to kind of like a, a pivotal moment in my life. I'm not sure how much of it was traumatic brain injury and how much of it was post-traumatic growth, probably a mix of both. I was one of those people who had a really stark personality shift at that moment. I don't know if it was fear or some sort of closed um, head wound, but um, I became very focused. I became very driven and I went from this kind of like college dropout slacker, what they call in the army, sham artist, to just this, I was promoted to sergeant the next day as well, so that helped. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I couldn't hear anything as they were promoting me, <laughs> so, because the IED was so loud, but I completely changed my personality, enough to where a lot of my friends took notice and kind of gave me crap about it. But by the time I got out, I was 100% driven, and I could have went to any school that I wanted, you know, I didn't have wherewithal to you know, look around, but I, I could have went, you know, to our flagship UK in Kentucky. I could have went straight to UK, but I wanted specifically to go back to Somerset Community College where I dropped out and proved to myself that I could have done it all along because I knew I hadn't gained any academic skills in the military, but I had gained uh, what I talked about earlier, which was um, 
you know, discipline, uh, self-respect, you know, just uh, the notion that the things you do are a reflection upon your character. And I took pride in who I was. And so when I went back the second time, I rocked it. I had my associate's degree in a year. I think I had a near perfect GPA. I had all A's and two B's. Two B's were in classes I didn't even have to take. I just took them to challenge myself. And then I I went to EKU. And from there, I uh, got, I decided I was going to major in English, which is what I cared about. I like to write. Right. I saw myself as being a writer someday and decided to major in literature uh, because what better way to learn to write than to read people who write well. Right. Started the um, student veteran organization there not too long after in 2009, EKU Vets. And that was the time when I was talking about when there was just a person in the broom closet doing the uh, VA claims. And so me and this Marine Corps vet, uh, Patrick Sinclair, who I still keep in touch with through partnerships with the VA now, he's the VA voluntary service officer up in Lexington. Uh, me and him made a great team. I'm the introverted kind of guy that will sit behind the scenes and look up people and write emails. And he was the extroverted kind of guy, very much like a Marine out in Iraq. They would just kind of, the army would get out of the kill zone and assess whenever an idea would go off, we'd be the same kind of vicinity. Marines would just veer right off into the desert towards whatever caused it. And so he was kind of that way and I was kind of my way. And whenever we had meetings with vice presidents and people like that, uh, Patrick would usually go do those kinds of things. And I would do the research to make sure that we had our facts together. And we basically told him, look, you're making all kinds of money off this GI Bill, off these veterans coming to your campus. We had like 1,500 vets or something at the time. It was it's crazy all the vets coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And we told them, we was like, look, let's get, give us a place of our own. Give us, um, you know, a resource center. Let's let's work together and do something for vets that uh, we can be proud of here. And uh, we had our first, um, call it a club meeting. Clearly, we were some sort of lobbying organization. One of, the, one of the six people at that meeting was the president of the university, uh, Doug Whitlock, who happened to be a veteran. He basically said, anything you all want, you're going to get. And uh, awesome. we did. Um, so they created what's now our Office of Military Veterans Affairs largely because of the efforts of Patrick and you know other veterans like uh, Jeremy Cox who was really involved uh, Ryan Donahue uh, they've both gone to do great things Jeremy is a, a marital counselor and uh, Ryan works for the VA system as a, a claims part of it and um, I'm still working in academics so we uh, we were able to you know really show what veterans are capable of when they get back is the fact that we were mature you know I was a sergeant Patrick was a staff sergeant in the Marine Corps we were NCOs most of us who um, we had leadership experience. We had we had the courage to go out and say things. When we said, when, when you're in the military, you have this kind of general military authority thing. You see something that's not right. It doesn't matter what the person's rank is. You can correct them on the spot. You can say, sir, sergeant, whatever. You're not doing things the way the military says it's supposed to be done. And you're, there's no repercussions for that. If you're right, if you're wrong, of course, then you're going to be yeah, right. exactly. in a lot of trouble. But that's the kind of the way we viewed the world. We said, okay, this is the way things should be done. This is what we're contributing to the school. What can the school give back in a reasonable way? And we went out and we did that like we were pros. We hadn't even graduated college, but we were out there just showing what vets were capable of. I think that impressed a lot of people in leadership positions to say, these are our veterans. These aren't like the other students who are just kind of waiting to be told. These are students telling us what they need. So they jumped on that. And so before I finished my bachelor's degree, we had everything that we asked. We had a center. We had an office. They hired a direct, uh, Brett Morris, um, who became a great mentor of mine. And it was Brett, whenever I started my master's program at EKU in English, who gave me a job. Because uh, I always I always make the joke, I got you your job, Brett. And this is Brett Morris is a retired lieutenant colonel. 
Dr. Brett Morse now, who's actually gotten his EDD since then, he um, gave me a job as his graduate assistant. And my job was basically to develop a peer mentoring program. And he kind of just gave me carte blanche to do what I thought needed to be done, which was great for me. Absolutely. And one day I went up to him and I said, hey, Brett, I'm looking around. I see all these different studies programs. We've got women and gender studies over here. We've got Appalachian studies. We've got African and African American studies. We've got other schools, got Asian studies, Irish studies, Jewish studies. I don't see veteran studies anywhere, Brett. Why aren't we doing this? I mean, we had just gotten, I think, the number one ranking for schools in the country for the military times. This was like 2010 or 11. And I said, well, this is the place to do it, Brett. Anybody's going to do it. And he's like, go for it. Now I'm a little out of my own because I've just taught my first college class. Now I've got to design an academic program. And so I talk to people now and they're like, that must have been like the Wild West because that just doesn't happen. Uh, master's students, their first year of uh, grad school developing academic programs. But sure enough, I, you know, I was smart enough to pull together a group of people who knew what they were doing. We um, got the people together. We talked about the classes that we were already offering. We had classes that were related to uh, military and veterans issues, like our English 386 war literature class. We had military history classes. We had the uh, history department teaching those as well as the, um, the ROTC people. But we didn't have those, a veteran studies intro course. We didn't have a program. And so... I uh, have been teaching a course uh, just for veterans, actually, an orientation to college course where I brought together like all kinds of stuff about veterans resources. So I had speakers from like the American Legion, the VFW. I had a book uh, it was free, freely given out by the Military Order of the Purple Heart, uh, Tears of a Warrior by Janet and Tony Seahorn. I had um, been teaching a um, orientation to college course for vet for veterans, which is something that Brett had me doing. I'd kind of already constructed a veteran studies course in a way, and then I had uh, representatives from like the American Legion, uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars, where I was a service officer, and we had a free book that was given to us and just stacks from the uh, Military Order of the Purple Heart, the Tears of a Warrior book. Of course, at this point in, in my academic career, I was really into writing, and I was getting more and more interested in bibliotherapy and the ways in which veterans had come back from war and used writing and artwork as a way to uh, cope with things they'd seen. The course that I constructed was 50% classical study skills, but also 50% veteran resources and types of social issues that vets were going through. So this was a class that uh, spawned the Journal of Military Experience because I offered um, extra credit for students who were willing to write stories and do artwork about their experiences. They didn't have to, but they were, they were able to. And most of the students did, and they did a wonderful job. And it brought a lot of uh, attention to the school uh, because I think the the New York Times even mentioned the journal at one point. Uh, we got the Student Veterans of America Award for Program of the Year. Um, all kinds of cool stuff, just because we were basically self-publishing a journal uh, full of veteran stories in a kind of you know, very organic, community-based way. And so after developing that course, after bringing a group of people together and discussing the idea of veteran studies, things moved pretty quick. I came up with what I thought you know, the Intro to Veteran Studies course should have in it. Uh, we had originally kind of settled on these three domains of study, relational, cultural, and institutional. Relational being uh, the ways in which veterans relate to one another and uh, larger society. Uh, cultural being um, representations of veterans and culture and how those representations can influence um, you know, societal treatment of veterans, but also institutional, understanding how the military works and functions and how veterans who even acclimated to those systems come back and can either be benefited by their experiences there or kind of held back in some ways trying to learn how outside systems work. So 
long story short, young idealistic grad student Travis uh, finds himself in front of like three or four very high ranking curriculum committees, gets it approved, and lo and behold, we've got our first minor certificate program. Obviously, it was something I was very proud of, and I enjoyed teaching it uh, for the first two years or so. But eventually, it came time for me to finish my master's degree and go off and get a full-time job, which you know, this was all you know, grad student plus one adjunct gigs, not really going to pay the bills, um, at least not in a way that I wanted. Um, so I had to go get my doctorate, and I went to UK. And I spent about six years doing that. I researched uh, 20th century American war literature pretty extensively. Um, the topic of veteran identity. I took a lot of social theory classes, took a lot of um, just kind of anything I can get my hands on that would explain uh, the veteran's symbolic role in society and how that role uh, influences veterans in real and perceived ways. You know, for instance, uh, one of the big arguments that I tried to make in my dissertation, which is a current book project of mine, was that returning vets are kind of uh, pigeonholed between these two uh, competing stereotypes, a hero and a wounded warrior. Lots of people have said this. I'm not the only person to have said it, which means that I'm on to something. You know, people are all coming to the same conclusion. Uh, we have this notion that veterans come back and they're heroes. We thank them for their service. We uh, clap with them in airports. We um, hang out you know, yellow ribbons and bumper stickers go on the backs of our cars. But when we thank veterans for their service, we're really not having a conversation. We're just kind of preempting a conversation. So it's a very superficial kind of praise to say they're all heroes or to do this uh, kind of ceremony that we do. And I don't know that that necessarily helps veterans as much as it helps civilians feel good about saying they support veterans. I'm sure the, the attempts are genuine, but I think it lacks what we call in college critical thinking. So you thank a veteran for their service, you should know what the veteran did. And that's what Veteran Studies is all about. It's about taking students who um, largely are not veterans and giving them a chance to kind of learn how to look at veteran identity and break it down in a systematic way using intersectionality, for instance, is what I really try to teach. How different social identities intersect with veteran identity to create a, a unique person. Every veteran's unique. Uh, the other side of the coin there that I looked at was this wounded warrior mentality. Okay, so we got the Wounded Warrior Project, the Wounded Warrior um, Program. These things do great things for vets. Um, there's been some scandals in the past, but I think by and large, the, the, they've kind of ironed those out at this point. Those were a couple of years ago. But the, the concept of a Wounded Warrior kind of irks me a bit in the sense that um, it's a kind of a victimization narrative. You come back from war and your identity is predicated upon the things that you're no longer able to do. I think that when a veteran adopts that, it could be dangerous. It can lead to um, just um, not really conceiving of your full potential. Rather than coming back and thinking, you know, I've got all this experience for the military. I've got all of these things that could have killed me or could have, like, um, drastically altered my life to motivate me. Rather than looking at those as strengths, as examples of resilience, they're looked at as um, kind of impediments. So the notion that, you know, You've got PTSD, but you're never going to get better, even though the science says that after, you know, amount of time, 10 years or so, you should be showing some market improvements. But if you don't believe that, if you don't look and seek out ways to try to improve, and I can say this from firsthand experience, I'm not a psychologist. If you don't look for ways to try to improve your well-being, if you don't seek out therapy, if you don't seek out uh, camaraderie among veterans and groups of people who've gone through similar experiences, if you accept that that is the way the rest of your life is going to be, then that's going to prolong your suffering. So that's the kind of thing that I kind of found, this kind of acceptance among veterans that 
because of service, they were somehow weaker, which is just the opposite of what is true. Like you and I both know that. And any, any person who's researched veterans and who's worked with veterans know that military service often results in strength. It doesn't result in weakness. Even those soldiers who've been extremely wounded will tell you once that they've they've conquered those wounds and they've, they've overcome them, they've engaged in what we call post-traumatic growth. They're stronger at the end of the road. And the science also supports that too, that you know, when someone goes through something traumatic, you know, at first there is a dip there in their well-being and their, their, their quality of life. It's natural. But as they ruminate, as they heal, as they get stronger, that, that experience of overcoming makes them actually stronger and more resilient than they were before the traumatic experience. This, this kind of this, this quantifiable, almost uh, tangible thing that we have among veterans who've gone through these experiences and merged stronger is something that I think our society lacks in terms of instruction. I see veterans as educators. I see them as purveyors of knowledge. I see them as examples of resilience in American identity that is not being tapped into the way it should. Rather, I see these two very superficial stereotypes, the hero and the wounded warrior, whereas we should have what I say are veteran storytellers. That's kind of the third part. And that's kind of where I've done a lot of my work, both in the nonprofit that I ran, Military Experience in the Arts with vets, um, with the vets I work with in the classroom, um, with the vets I work with now. It's all about trying to disrupt the prevailing stereotypes and to insert veterans' um, innate strengths and resilience into the conversation. That's amazing. And that, you know, that is, that is so vitally important because oftentimes, you know, you do hear veterans and, and you're reading it more and more now about let's get past thank you for your service because it does feel superficial. It is just like, you know, you could say whatever in a reply and someone is just happy that they remember to ask you, right? And so getting beyond that and finding out that individual story, because it's one of those things from the outside looking in, everyone, civilian only people are informed through Hollywood, you know, through television shows, through movies, they're reading these books that, that tend to fantasize certain aspects. And so from the outside looking in, like there's one picture and it largely looks uniform, but then when you actually talk to people and you actually get to hear about their experiences. There are so many variables that really make that experience, like you said, it is individual, right? And it's completely different for, for everyone. And that's, that's the real conversation. So I love that. I love that that's your focus and that's been driving your work this whole time. So obviously, you know, we've covered a lot here. We've covered your time in education and then that definitely as I was going to ask you how your time in the military informed your academic domain, you've talked about that in, in detail. Let's talk about, since you've gone into detail with that, where, where do you see yourself with your, with your future projects? What, what kind of stuff are you working on now? What, what, you know, what's current, what's in the future for Travis Martin? Well, currently, um, I have two jobs at EKU. My first job is the first year courses administrator. So I'm the guy that puts together all the first year seminars, which if you look back at my story, you notice that was my first teaching gig was designing those for veterans. Now I'm designing them for all students. So um, I love this job because it's 
50% professor, 50% army sergeant. I'm taking young people and I'm trying to motivate them to succeed, help them find their purpose. One of the things that I did not have before I joined the military. Right. I'm also teaching them study skills and the things that they need. So I'm, I'm giving them um, a chance to really go out and figure out what they're made of. And so I love that job. My second job, and the one I've been spending a lot of time on lately, is developing and launching this Kentucky Center for Veteran Studies. So this is going to be the next evolution of our uh, Veteran Studies program. And so where I'm going with this is I'm trying to focus more on career pathways. That seems to be the um, the focus of a lot of schools these days, as states cut funding, as um, you know, just the classical you know study for studying sake kind of isn't really working anymore for the funding models. Well, I can take veteran studies and I can show you a hundred ways in which that'll improve the career outcomes of students who get involved, especially among students who are going into what we call the helping professions, psychology, social work, right. nurse, therapeutic recreation, um, you name it. Anyone who's going to be working in a field serving veterans or working alongside veterans in the DOD or veterans themselves, uh, people who might be going into the military, I especially love it when ROTC cadets take the classes because I think understanding the the uh, needs of um, veterans will help them make better decisions as leaders. You're going to send someone out in the front lines, know what the consequences are. I, I love the concept of that. Right. Um, so veteran studies has a lot of potential to prepare people to go out into the wor workforce as well as their home communities and make it a better place for vets. And so I'm trying right now to forge partnerships with people like the Department of Veterans Affairs, which I've already done. Uh, we'll be launching a mentoring program, for example, in which students that are in our Veteran Studies program will be paired with someone in their profession. So, for instance, I have, if I have a nursing major who is getting our certificate in Veteran Studies okay. and they want to work specifically in the VA, I'll be pairing them with a nurse in the VA. And they'll talk to that person a couple of times a semester. They'll say, should I take this class or that class? Should I do a project on this or should I do on that? What's it like serving vets? How are they different from other demographics? Just asking the questions that they got to ask. EKU as a school is what we call a school of opportunity. And I, I believe that because of the opportunities that have been given to me, but also because of the demographics that we serve. We serve largely first generation, um, low income students, um, from Eastern Kentucky all the way over to inner city Louisville. Um, these are students who are not getting a lot of mentorship from their families, who can't give that mentorship because they haven't been to college. They haven't worked careers in the VA and the veteran services. So, you know, we can do that in our program. We can provide that mentoring. We can provide that kind of um, institutional knowledge and um, hopefully give our students DKU a leg up, but also give them the thing that every VA leader has told me they need among their employees, which is actual knowledge about veterans cultures and the things they've been through. Be able to hold the conversation, to look across, um, you know, in that, in that provider room where there's a nurse and a veteran to have a conversation with them in a way where you're not intimidated. So many people are just intimidated to walk up to a veteran and have that conversation. That's why they say things like, thank you for your service. Um, they don't, they're afraid of saying the wrong thing and asking the wrong question. There's a notion that talking to veterans is somehow going to psychologically upset them. I don't know how we got to that point, but it's uh, certainly not true. The vast majority of veterans don't even see combat, let alone come back with psychological wounds. And those who do can often have those conversations and it would probably be more healing for them to have them in comfortable settings where it's not pathologized, where it's not you know, stigmatized. Um, Absolutely. Every student who comes through our intro course does an oral history. They sit with a veteran anywhere from half an hour to two and a half hours, and they talk to them about their service. They don't just go out and do it blindly. We 
work with an oral historian, Bill Kasiak, who's a great guy. We help them develop a script. We teach them in the course uh, what kinds of things veterans from different eras have gone through. Um, we prepare them to go out and have that conversation. More often than not, students are thankful that they've done this project because a lot of times it's their family members. They're not even having these conversations with their own dads, their moms, their brothers, and their sisters. Right. That's how intimidating the divide between civilians and veterans is. Once you can teach students how to do that, how it's not going to hurt anyone, or how it's not going to, it's okay if you fumble up and ask the wrong question. If you say, you know, Marine instead of soldier or troop or whatever, it's not going to, you know, be so drastic that the veteran's going to be upset. Veterans are mostly humble people. And I think part of the problem for vets a lot of times is this feeling of not measuring up, of not being able to um, live up to the story that people are bringing these stereotypes, like you said, from movies, from things like that. Everyone thinks that every veteran is American sniper. And that's just not the case. Most veterans are living uh, lives where they've done things that they're proud of. Sometimes they've done things they're not proud of. But most often, more than not, and this is the case the majority of my military career, it's just mundane. PMCS and trucks in a motor pool in Germany for a year. Right. That truck didn't move all year long. I had to check the oil every day. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, there's no, you're not going to upset me if you ask about what I did in Germany. You know, this is not going to happen. So helping students that aren't vets kind of understand that a lot of vets kind of, they grew from their experience. They lived, you know, lives that weren't incredibly traumatic every time. They um, are normal people. They are just trying to make it like everyone else and they can hold a conversation. It's just one thing that a student who they don't even go through a whole program can learn for our intro course. And that's why we keep it in our diversity category because veteran identity is a form of diversity. This is why. You can see from the things that are lacking in our understandings as a society about this, this is important. So as colleges across the country start, you know, over the past year and year and a half, two years, really the past 200 years, I look at the uh, deficits in um, diversity-based initiatives on their campuses and ways to improve awareness. Look at veterans, too, because veterans are a protected class for a reason. And all you got to do is teach a couple of modules on the Vietnam War to know that. Yeah, I think just trying to teach people how to communicate is one of the main things that we're trying to do. And that in itself is going to lend it to making people more effective in their jobs. Even if they don't work for the VA, the vast majority of vets don't use VA services. They're going to encounter veterans somewhere in their jobs. Even if they're not in the helping professions, if they're a business manager and they get a veteran employee, they need to know how to tap into that veteran's strengths and not fall into that trap of looking at weaknesses. Like, I don't want to hire a vet. They might have PTSD, call in sick all the time. You know, people really think these things. Um, I think if we can teach people the opposite, that, oh, that veteran's going to be 15 minutes early every day. That veteran is going to take pride in their work. That veteran is going to uh, bring to this job management experience well beyond uh, the types of situations that are encountered in a business environment. Um, so, I mean, there's just so much that we can do in, in order to reframe perceptions of vets uh, using this field. So the Kentucky Center for Veteran Studies is what I hope to kind of grow from an academic program. I hope to keep growing as an academic program, but also to kind of branch out into service learning, into um, co-curricular development, mentoring, things like that give students a chance to learn alongside their coursework in a way that prepares them for uh, making the world a little bit better for vets. That's amazing. That's beautiful, Travis. Uh, you're, you've, you've done lots of good work. You're doing lots of good work. I mean, so we're happy to have you on the show. Uh, and what I'm going to tell all the listeners now is so you can follow some of the things that Travis has done and so that you can follow some of the stuff he is doing now. 
when you see this link. We're also gonna put some links to Travis's work, uh, past and present, and we will also uh, keep you up to date on anything future that Travis shares with us that he's working on. And uh, we, will, we will all be able to share in this journey as Travis does his part to help grow these conversations that you know he has told us about today that are so vitally important. So Travis, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. We really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. And I would just say, as we continue to grow these conversations, Luke, because as you're starting your own veteran studies program there, it's going to be incumbent upon us to help others who want to do the same. And that's the one thing that veterans have is we are a community amongst ourselves and we can help each other um, wherever we're at. So let's, let's keep working together. And I look forward to our continued conversations. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. And thank you everybody for tuning in to Veterans and Academics. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.